0: Welcome everyone to the Race to 2050, where we discuss the innovations needed to feed a growing planet by 2050, feeding 10 billion mouths. In this episode, we are joined by the glorious Dr. Christopher Hendrickson. Chris, where does this uh, podcast find you today?
1: Uh, Today I am uh, working from a very cold, blustery West Jordan i um, just doing some data analysis from my office.
0: Yes, yes. Um, I, I should announce to all of our listeners, you and I do work with each other. Um, but so we, um, you know, if uh, we will try to go, go away from uh, some of the uh, career and, uh, you know, uh, company uh, type of uh, shop shop, uh, contact. Yeah, a yeah, uh, shop talk, right. Um, and, 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 and that's important because um, our, our topic today is a little bit different than what uh, Chris um, and I talk uh, talk about often, and, and for our listeners, I refer to Chris as Chris or Christopher or Dr. H. So if you hear me saying those terms, it is all the same person. We only have uh, one, uh, one guest on here today. Well, Chris, um, why don't you uh, just get us started? Tell us about um, how you got involved in agriculture and how you uh, came to the decision that you wanted to change the world's problems uh, in the face of uh food fiber and agriculture
1: sure so i grew up in uh the east coast I'm, I'm originally from new jersey and despite its uh its title as being the garden state agriculture it, it was <laughs> was sort of a yeah a bit of a luxury in the state I, I was actually fortunate to grow up in in sort of central new jersey where there was still quite a bit of farmland left over um and it really just drew me, you know, as a, a rare resource, um, you know, the green space associated with with farming and, and producing food for communities. Um, as I started to sort of mature, you know, into the into my college years and stuff, I I started asking myself just a, a really simple question that that drove me, and that was, how do these things work? How do these plants um, interface with the world so successfully? In places that are ideal and in places where you'd be shocked to find a plant. Um, and that's what sort of you know drove me through my, my college years and into my postgraduate years.
0: Uh, Chris, can you tell us about your academic background, where, where you studied, uh, your emphasis on study, uh, so on and so forth with your three different
1: schools? Sure. So, um, I decided to get my bachelor's degree from, um, good old Rutgers University, the State University of New Jersey. Um, worked with some really, really great people there. A good, what seems like, I think 15, 20 years ago, something like that, wow. um, including Dr. Bingru Wong and, um, Dr. William Meyer, um, both associated with the turf grass uh, research program there. So a lot of my bachelor's and sort of early work Um, did revolve around sort of ornamental horticulture, turf grass study and and management and things like that. And uh, during that time, I was also fortunate enough to work at uh, a TPC um, golf course, the TPC Yasna Polana, in New Jersey as well. So really formative time for me. And uh, after that, I managed to um, move out to Utah, where I pursued a master's degree in plant physiology at uh utah state university in logan um i pursued a, a research question there where i was looking at uh characterizing competition in, in landscape situations between two uh native um, trees and native turf grasses to see what was um you know a best combination in, in the Intermountain west here where um, water and resources for things like landscaping can be a really prized resource. Um, and then finally, I, I decided to, you know, keep pursuing that question of how plants work by, uh, pursuing a PhD up at, uh, Pullman, Washington, at Washington State University, where I looked at some of the genetics and more specifically genomics involved in, uh, regulation of cold induced ripening in, uh, pear fruit. Fantastic.
0: And uh, your your academic journey—how many years? And um, how uh, how did you transition from um, being academic to uh, you know your professorship to now uh, being in the um, you know in the, the private space? Couple,
1: sure. So um, you know, I, I, during my my six and a half year PhD, I, I was fortunate enough to. Interface pretty closely with a lot of industry members um, with the tree fruit production world and, and sort of tangential uh, industries there. And so I always sort of had a, a nice attraction to some of the private sector aspects of plant biology and agriculture and stuff. But uh, soon after my Ph.D. ended, I accepted a uh, position as a assistant professor of biology at a uh, small private university down in San Diego, where I served for about uh, four years there. So got quite a bit of, of, you know, teaching and and grant writing um, and research experience under my belt there, but um, Mm -hmm. ultimately decided to keep, you know, pursuing that question of how plants work in a different context.
0: Great, great. Um, Well, let's dive right into the topic for today. How do genomics shape our future and being able to feed more mouths by 2050. Let's first start with, what is genomics? How do they relate to uh, food and agriculture? Um, and how has that been a solution since, you know, let's go back
1: to Borlaug. Sure, sure. Um, Borlaug, I, uh, a former resident of Pullman, Washington. So we always like to claim credit for him. Go Cougs, Of yeah.
0: course. Yeah, go uh,
1: That's right.
0: Um, uh, that, and let's clarify washington state kooks not brigham young kooks just uh, yes, i don't get yes. any i don't want to get anyone too offended that's listening to me today very
1: important distinction yes 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 um so genomics really is, is a fancy word that refers to the study of, of sort of how life works all all living things are, are composed of cells which themselves um contain a sort of set of, of instructions for how that particular organism um, should be made and how it should interact with the world. And those instructions come in the form of DNA or genes. And we're we're fortunate enough now, current biologists, to to be able to leverage um, a a really fairly simple mechanism that that life uses, and that's the the four uh, so-called letters of DNA and we know the the repeatable patterns of how that dna is leveraged in cells to turn into proteins and and chemicals that sort of do the job of interacting um, with the world around that particular cell or organism so modern biologists are are able to employ genomics to you know predict what genes might come out of a a new sequence of dna that's never been looked at before Um, We're able to study the connection between diseases and our own uh, DNA sequence. Uh, That would be the human genome. So um, we're really in a a remarkable time for medicine and agriculture and and all sorts of sciences that are related to biology um, because of of genomics and and just how fast the field is advancing.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Um, Chris, could could you describe... Um, for for our listeners, you know, there's a lot of misinformation that, in media, and and also, you know, you go to the grocery store and you see, you know, non-GMO foods, and um, you know, just kind um, kind of uh, the the disparity of what we're seeing in the industry from people that are wanting to promote, um, you know, better genomics, which is you know better promotion of of our the world and, and lives that we live, to um, and and then second after that, uh, to discuss. Um, you know how how this all happens how do you get two plants uh to create another um that is then more beneficial for um for the stomachs of, of the children of the earth
1: so really the the entire field of genomics at some level explores the connection between uh just a, a chunk of, of dna sequence the atgc's of it and what that sequence actually controls or, or manifests in um And so ultimately, what genomics attempts to do is sort of derive the the signature of biology that plants, if we're looking at agriculture and feeding the world, um, trying to derive what nature has taken millions of years in a lot of cases to evolve to and try and sort of reverse engineer what those genes or or sequences of DNA um, are doing to help that plant interface with the world better. Um, for example, if we're interested in feeding a growing population in the face of decreasing arable land across the world, um, we need to find aggressive strategies to to help find uh, unique genes that help plants, let's say, for example, produce more grain uh, in the face of um, more you know hot summer summer highs. Um, yes. Or or reduce humidity or extended droughts, things like that. We need to find solutions that are controlled by by crops genetics that that are going to help them be more resilient for the future ahead.
0: Okay. Um. So let, let me restate my question. Um. What what are the politics um of of genomes and uh, how how do they occur from the farm to uh what what's being put on our kitchen table?
1: Ah. Okay. Okay. So. In terms of of how genomes are handled from a a legal perspective, um, you know, it's an evolving subject, to be honest, um, and that's really going to stipulate a a lot of how uh, genomic research moves from a research context to something that you can, you know, put on your fork and and eat. Um, We the connections between uh, what a gene in a crop does And what that that function is, is very much a piece of intellectual property. So it becomes a a project that academic researchers, commercial researchers, and a lot of other interested parties um, um, are pursuing right now. And one example would be, uh, one of of the early successes of that would be things like development of genetically modified uh, crops, like the flavor saver tomato. Um, This was something that was developed in the early nineties.
0: What, um, um, what may, maybe talk about, um, when, uh, genetic modification went wrong. Um, and that's how that was of concern for people, um, uh, because sure. the science wasn't as to where it is now. And, uh, maybe how that got, you know, what we call now the, uh, 2020, what we now, now call the, the woke group, um, you know, got concerns about this and started being huffy and puffy and getting the ears of, uh,
1: of the meat. <laughs> right. Right. Um, you know, as this technology has matured, and you know, any any discussion of genetic modification of crops in in a modern context um, should probably mention technologies like CRISPR as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but one example of some of the criticism of GMO technology has been this lingering question of what are the unpredicted impacts of manipulating um, the the genome or or collection of dna um, that set of instructions to make an organism if we make one change that we know of at point a could it have other impacts at points b you know bc and xyz that we're Mm -hmm. unaware of um and so that those concerns are you know valid i would say from an ecological and maybe health perspective but scientifically it's asking us to to prove you know, a what if? Um, and that's never an easy question. And so it almost begs the question, is there a data set re- revolving genetic modification of crops that would sort of alleviate those concerns? And, and apparently so far, the answer is no.
0: Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned CRISPR um, for our listeners, and, and they vary, Chris. You know, we, we have farmers that uh, are our listeners that are, you know, in their, uh, you know, 60s that have been farming for you know, forty, fifty years to we have um, housewives that are just concerned about the food that they're going to be putting on their table to feed their family. Um, sure. may, maybe talk about what CRISPR is, just so we, everyone can understand about you know the evolving and uh, very exciting technology uh, such as CRISPR.
1: Sure, you bet. So as as biotechnology has sort of advanced throughout the years, especially as it interfaces with this growing field of genomics. Really, our ability to control how, when, and where a specific mutation occurs in a a genome of a plant uh, has also advanced. Um, We've been able to induce genetic mutations or changes just as nature would do um, through some pretty brute force methods in the late 80s and 90s. And that involves things as simple as you know dipping seeds and Uh, the cooling tank of of nuclear reactors to to sort of use that energy to create mutations. But Mm -hmm. nowadays, things are a lot more controlled, whereas those processes were random. And so, for example, if a a genomics analysis identifies a particular gene with a known DNA sequence that's unique to it, um, uh, this CRISPR technique is a biotechnology approach that allows us to specifically change one uh, DNA letter in that particular gene that we've identified with a particular function. So instead of screening through thousands of randomly generated mutations and trying to identify the one successful mutant, um, we can speed that process up.
0: Yeah, and, and that's done by uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, You know, to maybe talk about some of those methodologies.
1: Sure. So when we send a, a, a small sample of DNA out to a, a, a DNA sequencing device, um, which itself is a multi-billion-dollar industry now, um, that small amount of liquid becomes literally terabytes uh, of information um, yeah. that can fit onto a thumb drive or whatever. But we're talking about literally billions of A, T, Gs, and C's that when combined in a, in a unique sequence or order, um, identify what that sample is. Um, and so we, we use a lot of different programming um, languages and, and custom written tools. Um, there's a lot of now artificial intelligence and machine learning approaches being applied to um, the question of how do we take those t- those chunks of, of now, computer-based DNA sequence and sort of reassemble it into the, the master you know, puzzle piece that is uh, the cell's original genome.
0: Great. Right. Um, let's uh, let's transition to talking about the types of crops um, that are affected by genomics, and then uh, you know what what you believe the future um, is uh, is therein. Uh, can you speak towards that?
1: Sure, you bet. So. You know, when it comes to agronomics and and the study of genomes there we're really entering sort of a, a golden era um i would say i i think earlier developments of the genomics industry introduced people to this idea of developing you know the data very quickly uh, to answer questions at a pace and rate that we really didn't think was possible about two decades ago um and so where early, let's say, for example, PhD student uh, agriculture projects would revolve around generating the the genetic sequence um around a particular question, now the, the 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 big labor uh for the these projects involves analyzing that data. Again, taking terabytes of DNA information and trying to distill a biological answer uh from that can be pretty challenging. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, we see a lot of advancement of genomics in the study of advanced crop lines uh, of things like corn, um, you know, the main cereal crops throughout the world, rice, uh, wheat, and things like that. And in those applications, there's always going to be sort of a search to eke out just ever small increases uh, by percent of yield. Uh, for a given area of land and, and, and given the certain inputs that that land needs, um, you know, even an increase of, of 2% um, of kernel production in corn uh, can lead to a lot of, you know, people's mouths being fed where they otherwise wouldn't. So um, that is definitely a strong application. And then particularly in specialty crop production where um, typically unique genes are affecting unique traits. Uh, And one example of that would be uh, like my my PhD work at Washington State University, um, the unique genes associated with uh, pear fruits, cold requirement to induce ripening. Whereas similar fruits like apple um, and and cherry and and peach and things like that um, presumably lack that genetic um, uniqueness and therefore don't have that particular um, trait.
0: Okay, thank you. Do do uh, advancements in genomics uh, uh, provide us better nutritional value um, for the specific crop? Maybe speak towards that for our listeners.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, particularly with specialty crops, where you know things like fruit and high value crops that tend to carry that higher nutritional content, um, the era of genomics has allowed us to answer traditionally difficult questions like what are the genetics associated with increased uh, vitamin c vitamin b12 um you know mineral content in in things like uh the peel uh, of apples um genetic modification has allowed us to uh, generate lines of apple with uh, pigmented flesh that itself is more nutritionally valuable than your standard white flesh fruit as well so by leveraging these approaches, we can produce fruit that's more nutritionally valuable, uh, that's subject to less loss through um, transport as, as things go from the orchard to your supermarket shelf, um, and, and generally just a, a more valuable product that, that feeds more people and, and is less subject to loss.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, Chris, can you kind of talk about where the genomics industry has been? Um, maybe from uh, infancy, um, you know wh- where it began, um, and and uh, the, where it's at now, and uh, you know if you were to to bet on uh, the innovations and in what that will do to our food supply uh, by by 2050. Kind of a loaded question, I understand. I, I as you'll see, I ask a lot of loaded questions, but <laughs> no worries. Uh, I, I I think it's uh, I I think it'd be good for uh, our, our listeners to understand, you know, genesis to. Um, revelations
1: uh, what's taking place you bet you bet so um really this the the field of genomics has just absolutely exploded over the last 10 to 15 years um, all of it is based on a, a rather old technology called dideoxy uh, nucleic acid sequencing that's something for the, the chemistry and biology nerds in the audience but um, the technology has taken that traditional approach and just scaled things up uh, to a pace and extent that was just previously unheard of, um, where, let's say, for example, the, the time and effort that it took to produce one human genome, the, the very first one, uh, was a multimillion-dollar effort between mo- uh, many countries, different investigators, different professors, um, and it took about 20 years, and I believe— around 10 to $20 million, um, now through some of the advancement of genomics and, and, and DNA sequencing technology in the industry around that, um, that job can be done now You know, in about four to, to six hours for about a thousand bucks. So just really, really tremendous growth in, in the pace, the technology itself. Um, And and the market capital uh, of that that sequencing technology, too. Right now, we see sequencing really exploding quite a bit in personalized medicine, where um, doctors are are looking to connect an an individual patient's genome to their maybe prevalence uh, to contract a certain disease or disorder and really look at uh, health and medicine in a more preventative way. Great. Thank you.
0: Uh, I, I think that really paints uh, an exciting picture for everyone to understand about, and and also the the role we'll, we'll play uh, for us uh, over the next 30 years as we continue to feed a uh, global population. What are um, where, where do you think the biggest opportunities lie here, Chris? Where um, what what you know you're you're someone that gets up excited every day uh, to to change the world um, and to you know uh, you know increase the nutrition value uh, the the foods that we eat and to you know have more uh, solutions for farmers. What, what, in, when, when it, in terms of genomics, what, what gets you excited um, about uh, about the future?
1: I think I've been excited to sort of witness a, a sort of philosophical realignment among the agronomics community. In that traditionally, prior ter- prioritization of research objectives was. Uh, things like yield at above all costs. Um, yes. We're starting to see a, a really strong realignment of those priorities, however, um, by prioritizing natural resource uh, maintenance and, and integrity, really. So as you know, the, the demand for grain and, and food production continues to to rise throughout the world, our, our access to things like freshwater resources that are suitable to put on your crops um, it, at best, that's going to stay fixed and more likely our access to that will go down. So I, I think there's going to be a huge role for genomics moving forward in making sure that the, the technologies are being uh, proposed and developed to stay in pace with that, that growing population and growing food demand.
0: Great. Where, um, uh, where, where do you see that innovation? Uh, mainly taking place on on the farm.
1: I, I think we're going to see a lot of new amazing technologies that allow crops to grow in in, in situations and environmental conditions that we really just didn't think possible uh, even five years ago. Um, some researchers are, are looking at at are turning to nature um, for some of those answers, where we see crops genetically rather similar to things like rice and corn. Uh, thrive in, in high deserts of of uh, Northern Mexico. And it turns out those crops are able to partner with some endemic soil fungal species um, to sort of eke out a living there despite really, really extreme high temperatures, low humidity uh, and very little precipitation. So as we start to see some of our, our understanding of these extreme um, plant relationships in nature um, as we start to see our understanding of, of those situations increase, I think we'll, we'll see uh, leveraging of that information into agriculture as well.
0: Yeah, great. Do you, do you see uh, certain personality or ideological traits um, with farmers that you discuss that are, uh, I would say, more in line with uh, these the solutions and innovations? Uh, or, or do you see categorizations of industries that are they're fully getting on board? Uh, what what do you see with all your involvement there?
1: You know, it's mixed. I, it's it's definitely some pretty frontier um, science and, and concepts associated with it. And um, again, the the pace that genomics is moving with respect to agriculture, it can be um, you know pretty challenging to to ask some farmers that haven't changed their practices in you know two to three generations to embrace words and technologies like this. Uh, in their daily operations, but um, with all that said, we we look at climate trends and and you know things like drought and the, the recent derecho that that moved through the upper uh, Midwest in, in America, and I think eventually um, adoption of, of this technology and some, and some and some of the solutions that it offers um, are going to be pretty attractive, and we're starting to see that already. Um, Genomics-based um, crop development is pretty much a standard in, in all of the large um, agronomic commercial firms right now, from Bayer to, to uh, Monsanto, et cetera. And I, I think farming itself is moving to embrace a lot of this technology, uh, by and large
0: uh let, let's talk about you know we've kind of talked about the the big areas uh, you you've been involved in the in the hemp and cannabis market. how does it relate to kind of a smaller market that's um, you know growing uh, you know gr- growing tremendously um you know how, how does it benefit something like a, a sector
1: of that crop sure so you know being involved in the hemp and cannabis industry from its almost point of legal inception has been a really interesting dynamic because you know you're seeing a commodity crop i think that's what it's moving to or at least mm-hmm. toward um move from um let's say a background a, a very poor sort of provenance and understanding and it's being forced into um a direction where that that knowledge needs to be generated quickly and really the only answer to to identify questions about genetic uniqueness. Um, in, in backgrounds of cannabis and hemp with names like, you know, blue, purple, magic dragon, and, you know, yeah, things right. like that, we got to get a, a DNA fingerprint um, of each one of these purportedly unique uh, different varieties. Right. And, and so that's where a lot of, of research and development right now in cannabis and hemp are, are being poured into just establishing what that unique genetic fingerprint associated with each, um, uh, specific line is and then we can start to identify some questions about what genes in cannabis or might be correlated to different um, biochemical profiles uh, different traits associated with fiber production um, and things like that and so there's going to be you know a lot of different commercial interests associated with those, that information um, so you can imagine it, it's rather you know a closely guarded secret right now any any genomic information with cannabis or hemp.
0: Yeah, great. Right. Um, what what other kind of smaller cropping systems uh, you think are going to benefit from this uh, that you're aware of?
1: I think cannabis and hemp and, and sort of the, the large commercial adoption of it portends a, a, a larger trend that I do mm-hmm. think we'll probably start seeing more of in the years to come. And that's where um, we look to maybe not you know, proper medical treatments, but at least preventatives and and therapeutics uh, from natural uh, sources. And so I I think things like um, plant medicinal chemistry, you know, therapeutic or medicinal chemistry of of, uh, fungi are going to be a a really active field moving forward in the commercial space. Um, I I think if, if I were a betting man, I would probably suggest that uh, we're going to see a lot of genomic exploration of, of species like kratom, um, salvia, and, and similar things that that are active in a medicinal space. There's a lot of, um, in fact, a lot of uh, plants that are uh, native to the Intermountain West um, with activity that are that range from antiviral to anti-cancer um, and things like that. So if if the genes associated with those traits in those native plants can be identified uh, theoretically they can be applied
0: yeah that's great and, and yeah just for listeners to consider i mean last night um i i've been overcoming a cough it wasn't covid uh thank thank you heavens um tested negative but i've been dead nice. battling a cold and a cough and that's why chris and i are not meeting in person for this interview uh, by phone, but last night I took a I took a bath with uh, lavender and with CBD oil, um, and I woke up this morning after a, a, a lot of rest, uh, just feeling like a million bucks. And so those therapeutic methodologies that are uh, readily available to us, and I mean these are products purchased off my you know local Harmons grocery store, um, you know they're they're benefiting us, uh, making it so that I don't have to go to the pharmacy and take a, a synthetic chemi- uh, chemical chemical. Uh, so it it really is weighing so many advantages uh, for for society, and uh, makes me excited about uh, the potential of being able to use uh, you know these crops as you mentioned, um, and the, the innovations that will take place there.
1: Absolutely, um, I think Chris, the beginning um, of the trend.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm I'm excited about it. Um, so so we've kind of talked about um, you know the nutritional, medicinal. Uh, crop science side of things when it comes to genomics. Let's kind of switch to talking about uh, fiber and industrial uh, applications because that's also, uh, you know, our, our main main thing we talk about here is feeding the planet by 2050. Uh, but crops also help us uh, live on this planet. And um, you know ha- how genomics relate to, um, you know, the the fiber and the uh, ways that we utilize crops uh, in the industrial um, and uh, you know clothing things of that nature.
1: Sure, sure. So at, back when I was a professor, I always used to uh, start my, my uh, botany courses by introducing uh, the three Fs and food, fiber, and then the third was a bit of a cheat, uh, pharma, PH. But, you know, it, it's important to note that we use plants not just for direct food sources, but um, textile industries based on, on um, you know, things like cotton production, hemp production, Um, have have been just a part of human development for eons. But now we're also starting to develop crops for uh, direct energy use um, and and things like algae, uh, bioengineering, and things like that um, have really taken off in recent years. And then finally, we use plants um, for some of the unique uh, chemical sources uh, that they produce as well. Um, But yeah, I, I think we can use genomics to Study the the genes associated with fiber content, uh, fiber strength in in different crops from um, you know systems where that content is wanted, like in, in hemp, um, and to other systems where that fiber content might not be wanted, uh, say for example, in more quote unquote cannabis oriented um, varieties
0: mm-hmm. okay, great, thank you thank you well um, what what's kind of uh, you know um, give you the, the open floor, Chris, um, at, at the, you know, w- once we've gone about 30 minutes into the interview, I'd like to uh, kind of transition from us discussing uh, the specific topic, uh, and that being genomics today, um, and how you believe farming, um, the production of our food and fiber um, over the next 30 years, what, what you believe uh, the solutions to the problems we face are, um, you know, if you were to bet on when you look at your farm with your grandkids, uh, 30 years what you're going to be seeing um, when you walk out onto those fields? Uh, maybe you know, be a visionary and tell us about what you think the future has.
1: Oh boy! Wow. Okay. Um, I, I think we can all agree that you know uh, there are some difficult challenges faced by you know the the trend of increasing demand for food and decreasing access. To the land and resources um, needed to produce that food, really mm-hmm. produces a lot of tension for society. And, and so, I, I, I think the the importance of agriculture and science and technology, and really devoting resources to addressing these just core fundamental questions and and challenges that society faces, um, it's really needed. I, I think the last. You know maybe two to three decades of of american um policy have sort of let the ball slip a little bit in in making sure that we're producing the answers needed to face these questions before um we really start you know suffering from them um i i think if we can you know look ahead in 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 the 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 future by about 30 years i think we're going to see trends that people have rightly identified now Um, in terms of access to nutritionally valuable food, um, access to just enough calories to survive itself. Um, These are trends that are increasing not only around the world, but inside America as well. Um, And so we need to make sure that we're producing not only enough food, but enough high quality food and ensuring that there's universal access uh, to that nutrition. Um, and and so this is where agriculture really interfaces with a lot of other aspects of, of modern society uh, to make sure that the, the the benefits of all that food production are reaching as many mouths um, as possible. I think with with enough you know resources and time and and um, R and D effort oriented towards the, these challenges, I think the answers. Are well within reach, and I've always been of the philosophy where, um, if we're if we're trying to identify an answer to a natural challenge, we should probably be looking around to other places in nature to see where nature has already identified an answer to that challenge. And so, if we're asking ourselves, you know, how can we ask a crop? Like a, a, a corn or wheat plant to to survive in um, ever increasing summer, you know, heat waves and droughts and things like that, and, and still pack on grain. Um, we can look to species that that thrive in, in conditions just like that um, throughout the United States or, or or the world, and study those plants more to identify the mechanisms that allow them to do what they do and then apply those mechanisms into the systems that we need to feed the planet.
0: Yep, 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 De- def- definitely agree. Yeah, th- thank you, Chris. Um, may- maybe talk about um, some outlying things uh, in regards to genomics. You know, uh, uh, my- microalgae, aquaculture, um, how um, genomics relate to uh, livestock in the case for animal protein. Um, I, I think uh, th- there's some things, there's some topics like that that our, uh, our listeners aren't aware of, and I, I know you have some uh, expertise in that realm and can speak sure. towards some of those things.
1: So I think probably one of the most timely um, notable things to mention about genomics in, in the modern world is today. Uh, we find ourselves about 24 hours after the announcement from the first private uh, firm um pharmaceutical c- company pfizer um announcing okay. a successful vaccine and it turns out that the sequence that they use to generate that vaccine uh itself leveraged quite a bit of genomics based um study and, and knowledge and where traditionally uh, a workflow to um you know look at a new pat- viral pathogen um identify its protein-based sequence Um, identify its DNA-based genome, and then, you know, with that information in hand, start studying what impact it might have in different um, animal-based cells. Um, Genomics has allowed us to accelerate the pace of asking those questions and identifying answers to them probably by about 50 to 100-fold. And I think um, the current administration's Operation Warp Speed really speaks to, you know, leveraging the, the power Um, of genomics uh, to to accomplish those those tasks. And and so we've been able to um, dial in uh, on the protein sequence of a particular uh, protein for the coronavirus or or the virus that induces COVID-19 and and derive a, a vaccine that can then target specifically that protein, neutralize it, and make sure that the virus itself never even enters a human cell. Um, the best. All of that, yeah, really, just uh, stopping an entire, you know, microbiological interaction um, because we can predict how those proteins will work with one another. Just truly amazing stuff.
0: Yeah, so I mean, g- genomics are uh, not just shaping our our um, our, uh, our our future of food. Um, we're we're seeing it play out in real life when people are talking about the vaccine of uh the covid-19 and the pandemic uh, li- literally uh s- stopping you know the uh, you know I don't want to call it biological warfare um uh, but you know the the things that we've dealt with um sure. with this so yeah th- thank you that's uh, fa- fantastic information um to tell uh you know chris i i like for uh, our listeners to you know we we ask innovators to come on the show um may- maybe tell tell the group you know um the the things that you think you'll be proud of um um in the year 2050 that you were involved in um i i think it's it's cool for people to hear about the projects that you're working on or that you believe you're going to work on and and how that's going to shape our uh, our planet could could you kind of uh you know award us with
1: those thoughts sure yeah you bet you know as is someone that just started in in my academic journey with just a a really fundamental curiosity about how life works. Um, You know, after about 16 years of, of, you know, academic training and and related experience, um, you know, uh, it, it turns out that a lot of life shares the same sort of core mechanisms. And once you get comfortable with, with those basic mechanisms of DNA being, you know, sorry to bring up high school buzzwords, but transcribed and then translated into a protein. Yeah. Um, and sort of the universality of that, it, it really empowers you. And so when you start to review different um, scientific publications from maybe one, you know, subsection of biology, um, you, you start to pick up on things that maybe might be able to be applied to a challenge over in a different area of biology, say at, um, agriculture and, and plant biology. And so it starts to become an empowering sort of ability to, to look through um, current research and, and news and things like that and find solutions to problems. And that's really what motivates me as a scientist uh, and a researcher. And, and I think with that ability and familiarity with genomics and sort of the the, the language of life, if you will, Um, I look forward to being a part of of the solutions that that are hopefully going to help feed the world. Um, I I have all sorts of, you know, cool research objectives in mind. One is analysis of a um, a grass species native to uh, the Chihuahuan Desert in in North uh, um, uh, New Mexico. Um, Mm -hmm. And it turns out that this grass might be able to extract crystalline bound water from pure gypsum rock um, in the high deserts, um, there. And then, you know, if we can answer questions of how that works in a grass, that's fairly genetically close to things like corn and wheat, I think it could provide lots of different, you know, solutions to, to engineer, uh, lines of grain producing food that are just extremely resilient, uh, to things like climate change for the years uh, ahead. Um, I, I also maintain uh, a lot of interest in, in medicinal chemistry. Um, and so I'm always on the hunt for, um, you know, native plants and, and things like that, that might offer um, therapeutic solutions to, you know, difficult or expensive um, challenges in, in, in humans.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, well, Chris, um, it, is, uh, it is a pleasure to be able to work alongside you um, and also to be part of uh, the innovations that I know you're bringing forth into, into agriculture. Uh, any parting words for our, for our listeners as they uh, consider, you know, the race to 2050, uh, genomics, and then uh, I think anything really related to precision agriculture that you'd like to, to share?
1: Um, you know, not at all. Just, just to extend my my thanks and in inviting me here for the opportunity to speak to your audience today. Um, it's definitely likewise. It's it's always fun working with you and and the Aquiel team. Um, I I think in general, if I could speak to the audience about the role of genomics and, um, and the future, um, I would just say embrace the science. You know, every day people eat DNA, whether they think so or not, and. Um, We don't see people growing second heads and, and, you know, 20 fingers on on their ears and stuff like that. So, you know, these are processes that have happened to humans for for millions and millions of years. And uh, whether a scientist tinkers with the genome of a crop before you happen to put it in your stomach um, probably isn't going to have much of an effect because it hasn't um, in the same way that nature's messed with the DNA or or the uh, genomes of crops for millions of years before us. Um, And sure enough, when we started eating the early versions of corn, nothing happened to us, too. So um, science is good and so is food. And that's where the two sort of uh, play nice with each other.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Concluding remarks. Thank you for that. Well, uh, listeners, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Um, uh, Chris, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Dr. Christopher Hendrickson. Uh, someone that's going to continue to put together fantastic research and development uh, to, to make it so that we can feed 10 billion mouths by the year 2050. Uh, Chris, thanks for coming on. Thank you for telling us about genomics, um, how, what the role is in, uh, in, in human health and, uh, and in plant health and, and to uh, feed freedom growing the world. Uh, Chris, thanks again. And uh, we look forward, I I, I suspect we will have you on the show again, because there's other topics we we will be discussing as it relates to this subject.
1: My pleasure. Sounds good.
0: All right. Thank you. Goodbye.
1: Take it easy. Bye.